The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's financial objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should obtain independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, this is Barry Fitzgerald, Garen Ferro columnist for Stockhead. Welcome to another edition of the Explorers podcast. And we've got another interesting one today, and uh, it goes to the heart of the problem that the uh, steel industry has, and that's decarbonisation. The steel industry accounts for around 8% of uh, total global emissions, and uh, it needs to do something about it. We've seen lots of talk about hydrogen and uh, going off uh, grid with uh, solar and wind. But one of the immediate potential ways of improving its uh, carbon footprint is to use higher grade ores and particularly uh, magnetite concentrates up to 68% iron content compared to the 58 to 62% uh, iron content of the hematite ores that we produce out of the Pilbara. With that background, you'll guess that uh, I'll be talking to a magnetite company and we've got magnetite mines with us today. They are, of course, behind the Razorback project in Adelaide, which is uh, advancing on all fronts. And we have Mark Eames, the technical director with us today, to give us a rundown, firstly, on the thematic around decarbonation of the steel industry and the role that magnetite concentrates can play, and then We'll jump into the expansion study just released by the company. So with that, I'll say, g'day, Mark. Thanks for your time today. Thanks to you too, Barry. It's a pleasure to be on. Uh, Mark, it's hard not to uh, talk to uh, any company involved in the resources sector at the moment uh, where they don't talk about decarbonisation. And as I highlighted at the start there, the steel industry with 8% of total global emissions needs to be doing things. Um, And we all know that uh, grades are falling away in the Pilbara and that magnetite could well be part of the answer. What, what are your thoughts along those lines? Yes, well, it's certainly a, a major challenge for the global steel industry. And I think increasingly, as our large miners report scope three emissions, the downstream emissions uh, essentially arising from the use of the products, it's becoming very clear that uh, while efforts to move to a low emission footprint at the mining end are important, the uh, elephant in the room is the very large emissions uh, that you point to generated by the steel industry itself as it smelts the iron ore into iron and then into steel. And there's a growing consensus that uh, this is going to require uh, a shift in, uh, in the overall orientation of the global steel industry that's going to involve both a change in the sourcing strategy of steel mills and also over the longer term in the technology used to make steel. And essentially the the metallurgy is is complex and the technology is developing, but as a general principle, I think there's agreement emerging that low emission steel is going to require substantial volumes of higher grade iron ore supplies. And as you say, that means we've really got to start thinking about over time moving away from the lower grade ores that are mined uh, in some parts of the world. In particular, a lot of the ores out of the Pilbara uh, are relatively low grade, as you say, 
uh, and move to more processed ores um, that can generate these higher grade concentrates. And that'll, that'll really start to have an impact on, on emissions. And it's worth noting that that impact is effectively immediate. So a steel mill can actually reduce its emissions footprint pretty much straight away simply by using higher grade feeds because that'll essentially reduce the amount of coal and coke required to melt out the impurities. So it's uh, something which is important in the short term. And then over the longer term, the low emissions technologies that are being contemplated all essentially rely on higher grade ore. So it's very much a growing consensus that these uh, uh, lower emission steel uh, generation is, is going to require a shift of much higher grade ores. Mm. Now, I guess while there's real momentum around decarbonisation, in fact, the, uh, the higher uh, iron ore units that, uh, say, you get in a, a magne- magnetite concentrate, that's reflected in current pricing differentials, is it, is it not? Yeah, so it's, I, I think the short answer is partly. And, and so what we've seen uh, is the uh, we have relatively little reliable price history to go on in the iron ore industry because uh, pricing of different ore types um, on a spot basis or an index basis really is something that's only become um, part of the industry in the past um, five to ten years. But what we have seen over the past few years is premiums for high-grade ores, um, while volatile, have generally been increasing. And the corollary, of course, is that discounts for lower-grade ores are also increasing. And so that we're starting to see that um, come through. But it's interesting, I think, uh, a, a lot of observers are starting to think about you know, what, how, what the right way is to think about this going forward. And uh, again, the, the, the challenge is that current pricing uh, for current premiums for high grade is really more related to the impact on blast furnace productivity right. um, rather than the emission profile at the moment. Because most of the market that uh, is targeted, particularly by Australian ores, uh, is in countries where there is no formal emission restrictions or trading scheme in place, and therefore there isn't really a carbon price. And it's really the development of those um, caps or and carbon prices that are going to drive um, the repricing of higher grade ores compared to lower grade ores, and that's really at the very start of that process. So, as I say, what we're currently seeing is the premiums reflect the productivity impacts of higher grade ores, which are which are real and tangible and, and deliver today. But over time, we can expect decarbonisation is going to result in um, a changed pricing profile, and I think most people would uh, suggest that that's probably going to result in sig- significantly higher premiums for the higher-grade ores, um, and certainly over time, some of the lower-grade ores are going to face challenges in, in finding markets, particularly uh, finding uh, being able to place material with customers who are uh, uh, really chasing a lower emissions profile. Right. Okay. Uh, A broader question on the iron ore price. Um, I think for at least uh, seven years or so now, um, we've all been told by highly paid analysts that uh, the steel market has peaked, uh, plateaued, and that the price should be coming back to roughly US $80 a tonne. And here we sit today, the 62% benchmark price is around $150 a tonne. So 
what's uh, what is the outlook for the iron ore price from your viewpoint? Yeah, so I, I think there's uh, as a as a general comment, uh, you know, observing the iron ore industry over a long period of time is this appear to be a, a sort of um, a, a pattern where a lot of analysts and observers of the industry put out forecasts for the iron ore price that are that track well below the actuals that uh, the market uh, is operating at so the average price for the last 10 years for iron ore for the 62% benchmark in real terms is 110 mm-hmm. consensus as you say is uh, 80 is even probably a high estimate it's been uh, typically between 60 and 70 dollars and there's probably two areas that um, that go to the heart of why that is and why people think the uh, about the price in, in such a conservative way. The first one is that there's a, a view that um, peak steel is going to come along in China and potentially in other economies. And then after that, um, steel production will drop sharply. Um, and it's, that's really missing two things. The, the first point is that on in most economies, um, steel production, once it hits that uh, industrialized peak it's not so much a peak that leads to a, a, then a fall um, production is very stable so actually the production of steel in the developed economies is um, has been essentially the same over the last 40 years so you don't see the first thing is you don't see that sort of mm-hmm. collapse in steel production in the developed uh, as economies develop second piece is um, there's currently about 60 percent of the world's population who consume only 17% of global steel output. And so essentially a large proportion of the world, the majority of the world is yet to industrialise. And that includes places like uh, India and Southeast Asia. Um, and they really are on a rapid um, development pathway. And we're starting to see those those volumes pick up. So that's the demand side. The other thing is on the supply side, iron ore mines, as we all know, are, are very expensive. And um, everybody forecast in 2015, if I look back through history, that iron ore production would increase um, because there'd been a big wave of investments in the decade leading up to 2015. Um, in fact, what happened is as soon as the investment taps were turned off, um, what has actually happened is the iron ore production from Australia and Brazil, the two largest exporters, has actually fallen back. Um, and that's really not a huge surprise, but is um, obvious with hindsight that if you stop investing, then supply depletion and operational issues will impact on the uh, the supply from uh, from the major operations. And so that's what we're seeing is this uh, uh, essentially much stronger steel production globally than people expect. Um, 2021 steel production globally was, a, was an all-time record. Um, and we're seeing relatively uh, restrained iron ore output from majors. And if we turn to look forward, certainly it's uh, it's our view that uh, there is great potential for um, a continued period of reasonable and higher iron ore prices because uh, demand is still relatively strong and, and output from the major producers is still restrained. And then if we add in this decarbonisation theme, the outlook for high-grade ores uh, is likely to be strongly supported. Uh, okay. So we are talking about magnetite today. So you've got um, 
three or four big factors there, uh, giving a project like Razorback uh, some real momentum. So let's tick them off. Decarbonisation, global supply constraints, China-led demand still strong. And um, we, of course, got the post-COVID uh, economic stimulus around the world, building new bridges and buildings and whatnot. So all looking good. So let's turn our attention to Razorback. You've just released an expansion study, which uh, you have a DFS uh, ongoing in the background. But what, uh, what was the point of the uh, expansion study? So we developed a, an approach to the large Razorback resource uh, where we wanted to focus on a low initial capital for development. And so that was the motivation behind the in initial stage development. Um, and that uh, we've targeted an output volume of about 3 million tonne capacity uh, to start at a capital cost of around $500 million uh, US. Wow. And that uh, initial development is um, economic, uh, gives us returns of 17 to 20% post-tax, depending on, on cases at the average price we talked about and uh, therefore is an attractive entry for the project. And it relies on the existing infrastructure in the region, particularly power, uh, nearby water and transport infrastructure, port and rail infrastructure, which is, which is available. And that really is the sort of secret behind uh, getting a process magnetized or that, that works, along with a systematic development pathway. However, uh, we also recognise that the initial development uses a very small proportion of the available ore. So at, at, at magnetite mines, we have uh, dual delineated resources totaling uh, 5.7 billion tonnes of ore. And the first 30 odd years of that initial development only consumes less than 500 million tonnes. So, you know, we've got um, essentially uh, more than 10 times uh, more ore available than we use in that 30, first 30 years. So we think what's likely to happen at uh, Razorback is that the initial development will then lead on to a series of expansions. And that's exactly the way that most of the major iron ore provinces around the world developed. Uh, you know, Rio Tinto started at Tom Price at 20 million tonne capacity and is now operating at well over 300 million tons uh, across this Pilbara operations, for example. So it's a, it's a regular pattern to, to start with a, a manageable initial development with moderate capital, de-risk the project, um, work through all of the issues, understand the ore body and the processing, and then expand from there. And that's the sort of background behind the expansion study. Yeah. When we actually ran the numbers, um, we're very pleased to see that the expansion uh, not only was feasible uh, and worked in terms of the results, uh, we were getting a, a total uh, by building out to three modules, we'd increase output to about 7 million tonnes. A total post-tax IRR for the project would increase to 27% and uh, at, at long-run prices, uh, and a net present value of the total business would be of around $2.5 billion Australian. So that was very encouraging. The way we're going to use that information is that we're going to make sure that as we design the first module in DFS, we're going to make sure we've got all those expansion pathways open. So we're looking very carefully at siting infrastructure, um, looking at the mining operations, 
uh, thinking about where we're locating um, power, water, and transport infrastructure, and making sure that we maintain the optionality so that we can readily uh, move forward and expand uh, as we go forward. So one simple example of that, we've actually relocated the initial plant site that we were contemplating. So we actually make provision for additional modules to be constructed adjacent to the initial module. And what that means is, you know, without spending any more money on stage one, um, we actually make sure we've got a, a simple expansion pathway available in future, um, subject to market demand and finance and everything else. And so that really is, um, it's, it's proved to be a very useful exercise in, in terms of moving forward. Of course, our focus remains on getting first or from that first module by the end of 2024 or early 2025. That's our, that's our prime focus, but the expansion study does help us inform our future pathway. Mm. Now, I must admit, when I saw that first ore on ship by 2024, early 2025, I thought, oh, that's a bit aggressive. But then I had a look at the Rio's plans at Simindu in uh, Guinea, where they have to build a 670-kilometre rail line first before they do anything. And they have a, a similar timetable there, if it, if it indeed happens. So um, the beauty, of course, operating in South Australia, a good mining state, and you mentioned the infrastructure there. And given that we've been talking about decarbonisation, I was just wondering uh, what thoughts you have around the power grid there is obviously, I think, 70 80% uh, renewable. Um, that is a factor in... I guess, adding to the decarb story around magnetite production. Yes, it's interesting. Um, you know, a, a few years ago, um, uh, you know, we've, we've seen the impact of retiring um, coal-fired power generation uh, across the national electricity market, the Southeast Australian grid. And, you know, that's, that's a very topical issue, remains a very topical issue. But it's interesting, South Australia was one of the first states to move away from uh, coal-fired power. And uh, there were some glitches. So you may recall that uh, South Australia installed the very large Tesla battery. There's actually been a lot of development uh, to um, uh, strengthen the inf infrastructure in terms of interconnectors. Um, but the big development, which I think has, has surprised uh, a lot of people, has been that there's been a significant investment uh, in renewable power, particularly solar, in South Australia. So that's meant that the current... Uh, um, power generation in South Australia is uh, over 70% renewable and uh, is expected to um, get up to almost 100% renewable um, over the next few years. Uh, and so we're seeing some, uh, and that's also giving rise to some of the lowest wholesale electricity prices anywhere in Australia. And that really is uh, for a processed ore project where you require energy to grind uh, the material so you can extract these high-grade concentrates. Um, that's a huge advantage. And, uh, you know, it, it's something which, for example, in the Pilbara, where power is still largely today generated from gas, um, it's a it's a, essentially a, a built-in sort of high-cost input to any, any processed oil projects in the Pilbara. Whereas uh, in, in our case, we've got the advantage of being able to build a simple power line to connect up to the local grid, and then we've got reliable, uh, low-cost power with a high proportion of renewables. Right. Okay. Now, uh, Mark, uh, obviously there's a few steps uh, to go through before uh, first or on ship, 
what are those steps and uh, where are you at with them? So we're um, making good progress on our definitive feasibility study, um, aided by our consultants, uh, Hatch, uh, who are helping us with the processing test work and plant design, and GHD, who are helping us with the, uh, a lot of the infrastructure components. Uh, the, uh, that work is progressing well. We've completed uh, uh, one round of drilling to uh, obtain some more metallurgical samples, um, we're seeing the metallurgical test work process uh, advance, uh, and that's going well in terms of delivering results. Um, we're using uh, we're, as much of that test work as we can is being done in South Australia, where we've got some uh, excellent facilities. And so on the technical side, the uh, DFS is, uh, is progressing well. Um, on the community side, we've been doing a lot of work um, with the First Nations people in the region, the Nazarene people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we our aim is to uh, work through uh, a process of consultation and discussion and, and find um, collaborative pathways through that. Um, similar process uh, with local landholders. So we are working through uh, a process where we discuss the project and what it means and, and see if we can uh, find pathways that uh, are going to work for uh, everybody. So both the technical and the community side uh, is, is going very well. Um, the third leg is really um, putting together the uh, finance package to build the first stage. And really that work is uh, is just starting. Uh, in our schedule, that's planned to uh, progress uh, over the next nine months or so. And we're looking to um, uh, make move to decision to mine towards the end of this year. Um, and, you know, say without going into any details, one of the things that's uh, certainly making the discussions around finance much easier is that decarbonisation theme. It's, it's something which uh, just about every potential investor has concentrated on in discussions with us. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So there we go, folks. Um, now, I should mention uh, the code for Magnetite Mines is MGT. The stock's trading at 3.3 cents for a market cap of $105 million. So lots of leverage there to a company that's uh, embarked on this uh, program to uh, bring a premium product for the uh, transition of the steel industry into a, a lower carbon emissions world with the backdrop of uh, the benchmark iron ore prices uh, staying nice and strong at $150 a tonne. I'll just mention there, I think the break-even price uh, that the expansion study came out with was uh, US $40 a tonne. Of course, uh, the long-term price used in that study was 110 So lots of fat there for this project. And as I say, gathering momentum around some uh, key issues that have investors and uh, still end users around the world focusing on magnetite as a uh, part of the pathway to decarbonise the steel industry. So with that, Mark, thanks a lot for your time. Much appreciated and uh, we'll be watching with interest. Good luck with it all. Many thanks. I really appreciate your time.